Welcome to Ex Libris On Air and the stories behind the stories of today's literature and their authors. A presentation of Ex Libris Publishing, host connects with the writer to share the vision and inspiration behind their works. Insightful, informative, and always entertaining, please welcome this week's edition of Ex Libris On Air. Readings for Ex Libris On Air. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book is titled Magical Miracle Mountain, and my author who joins me from Hawaii is Sarah Burgess. Welcome to the program. Thank you. This is a, a fascinating book. It's a, you know, I, I guess by looking at it, uh, the best way to describe it is it is a sketchbook with some dialogue. And uh, for my listeners, describe for me how this book got written and uh, who your audience is. Well, how it got written was that I was taking a course in book design, and the assignment was to write a book, and so I did. And I then went on many other journeys and so on, and ultimately I came to Hawaii and brought boxes of this and that, and in it was this book. The book was totally complete, though not published. It was just a class assignment. And uh, so, anyway, that's that's how uh, it got here. Sure. I, and, I, will, I will mention uh, to my listeners, you have a, a, a marvelous history as an educator. Uh, you've taught or been an influence in teaching all the way to China and uh, in Hawaii, of course, and uh, you grew up in Idaho. Uh, you are now in Hawaii in a, I guess, not doing much teaching other than what you're writing. That's true, uh, but I'm a uh, committed teacher and annoy my friends by uh, taking, you know, giving them suggestions and other interesting things <laughs> of what they should do. Well, that's a, so, that's a good assignment. Uh, it's an unpaid and I think perhaps unwelcome <laughs> activity of mine. You have a, a fascinating history also on the back of your book, and you did mention that your mother has since passed away, but she was uh, 107 when this book was released, 107 years old when this book was released. That's, that's true. That, is that longevity? Does it run in your family, or is this just one of those unique things about your mom? Well, I think it was one of those unique things about my mom. Uh, she was famous here. Uh, she was called the oldest Democrat in the state, <laughs> and also the oldest person in the state, uh, and had a very, uh, very happy time here. And partly, I would say that, well, the people give me a lot of credit about taking care of my mother. I never felt that that was any kind of a burden. But uh, in my long, rather complicated career, I became, uh, some time ago, a nursing home ombudsman for the federal government. Mm. It was at a time when there were many terrible circumstances for people that got stuck and forgotten by their family in nursing homes that were set up to make money rather than really take care of people. And uh, I knew enough about it to say to my mother, I don't care what you want. You're not going to a nursing home, mm. period. Yes. And uh, I knew that Hawaii has a very strong 
belief that older people should be well treated and they're given a lot of respect. And if they were like my mother, who was uh, an interesting, very good-looking person, in fact, <laughs> um, a friend of mine did a a portrait of her, a painting of her. It happened to be in a bubble bath, and she oh, really? was uh, a little bit Victorian about such things and felt a little uncomfortable especially because the, the the artist called it, well, it, it was like she was a real charming person, and she was kind of a man, not a man killer exactly, but she was known uh, to be careful because she was so alluring. <laughs> oh, my. Well, that's a history that certainly uh, must present some wonderful stories. But we're here to talk about Magical Miracle Mountain primarily. And I want to find out a little of the story. I've read your book. It's 24 pages, so it's an easy read. Did you also do the sketches in your book? Yes. That was part of the assignment. Now, what is the Magical Miracle Mountain? I had read somewhere that you uh, didn't really feel like this or didn't write this book just to appeal to children, but had a broader audience in mind. Yes. Um, well, I'm a person that takes up causes. And some time ago, uh, I decided that um, I would think about what was important and and how people in a sense, were divided by choosing to be constructive or destructive. And I know that for children and lots of other people that destructive activities are very captivating. And uh, if I don't know if you're listening to the the uh, politics right now, but there's a lot trying of destructive to, yes, <laughs> activities in that that people are fascinated by. And so, anyway, the story is about a creature whose main goal in life is to create disasters. And he was so busy and going everywhere, creating all the major catastrophes of the world. And he got tired one day and found himself in a dump. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And... uh, it was, you know, old shoes and all kinds of things that had been thrown away. And he he was also just basically angry and ill-tempered and was throwing things all over the place. And in time, he threw so many things around, so much trash, so many uh, discarded things, that it became a rather large mountain. And... Um, the Boy Scouts made a, a trail to it, um, and he became rather famous. And even uh, found that it was it was nice to be an important person for something that uh, he had just done, and maybe had a little bit of guilt about his uh, past disasters. <laughs> and uh, so, anyway, the the point was that. Uh, it's fun to be creative and constructive, and you get very good rewards that you wouldn't get for being destructive and uh, just making life miserable for people. Yes. So it was an encouragement that 
that it's it's more to the advantage of a person to be constructive and destructive. It, it, it's a good way to be, but it's also more enjoyable. <laughs> and uh, the the mountain attracted birds and and uh, and lots of people came to see it. So this this uh, destructive person became famous and accomplished what he probably wanted, which was a lot of respect and and was able to do it with a mountain, a beautiful mountain with birds and flowers and trees and so on. Um, so my, my uh, I guess, goal, my opinion was that I would try to make it beneficial to be constructive to the the person involved well that's that's a good goal and and the underlying message of course is to to be constructive in what you do you have uh you have a very uh fascinating uh history and a uh, resume that probably is longer than 24 pages i mean if i were to read it it's really <laughs> really involved how did you get involved with with uh, education in china that part caught my attention well, um, I was teaching at that time for San Francisco State University, and they had made an arrangement with the Chinese government to send a group of people to learn, I guess, America's secrets at the, mm-hmm. in the School of Business where I was teaching. And they arrived, and <laughs> uh, they were trained to get along in America in a rather odd way, which was they all learned how to drive really big trucks. Really? <laughs> and they they uh, just didn't know that that not everybody is driving a big truck. <laughs> uh, but they were they're very good at at it. But it wasn't too practical. Oh. And uh, anyway. I was teaching a class for them in managerial communication, and uh, we got along well. And I, I was, uh, I, I, I later sponsored a Chinese student to come to this to America to study, and and uh, we were quite friendly. I, I started a club, uh, and. They came to my house and we had barbecues and you know it was it was really fun and I in the process met another professor who was Chinese and he was very uh, interested in connecting me with the um, Chinese consulate and uh, I got acquainted with them and uh, we we had. A, you know, good relationship, and so uh, this same professor arranged for me to go teach in China wow. at four different universities, and he said he he would plan it out so that uh, I would have a really good tour of China and get to know the country, and, and that was the case. I taught at four different universities and, you know, had a, a very interesting time, and it was a, it was especially unusual because the university was the power of the university 
was the um, not the principal or the president, but the the person who was the communist oh my. leader, and uh, that person uh, was very interested in America, and um, they you know they sort of tossed me on to different places. Mm-hmm. Probably no. kept an eye on you as well. I mean, you had yes, uh, possible did. possible influence. You've had a fascinating oh. fascinating history with all of your experience uh, in publishing Magical Miracle Mountain. Was there any challenges that uh, may have been something you hadn't expected in order to get this published? No, it it went very easily easy. Uh, I had essentially created a book for this class long before. That was all done. It was, you know, it was completed, uh, and it was in a way easy to publish. Hmm. And the publisher, uh, in the meantime, had become involved with uh, New Age psychology, and he was uh, particularly interested in a program called the the, ang- the sudden scream, the anguish dream, or something like that. Uh-huh. And this this particular kind of therapy was that people went into uh, some kind of room where there was no sound coming out and screamed. (laughs) And anyway, he was very caught up in that, and he was sort of the publisher. uh, And so the book turned out to have quite a lot of psychological information mm. <laughs> along with other things. Other implications from your book. You have uh, you have written other books. Are you planning to publish those as well? Uh, well, I'm working on one now uh, uh, in the process of it. And uh, because I took this course in book design, um, I, I felt you know, I I liked it. I, I sort of liked my own work, <sighs> and it, it was you know it was easy in a way for the publisher because it was already done, and it had the sort of political impetus of the uh, the man who was very interested in the primal scream. <laughs> oh my! And so it's a sort of a funny textbook, but it was uh, it was. Uh, interesting because there were lots of pictures and I had my own theories about how um, you know how to make it interesting it wasn't just the story but there were lots of pictures of uh, current events and and political things that were going on. Well, that should be a fascinating read. You have uh, completed this one, and it's in the marketplace. The title, again, is Magical Miracle Mountain, 24 pages. Right. My author, Sarah Burgess, S-A-R-A, without the H. Sarah, where can we get copies of your book? Well, uh, as far as I know, only through Ex Libris. Uh, It was supposed to uh, be... Uh, presented at a book signing in Florida, and I had agreed to go to sign books, and also I think that the the publisher connected it with Amazon. Yes. And 
and maybe other companies. Yeah, they typically can do a search under your name, S-A-R-A, Sarah Burgess, B-U-R-G-E-S-S, or by the name of the book, Magical Miracle Mountain, and they should be able to locate it online or request it at their local bookseller. Hopefully, you will get some traffic with this, and uh, we look forward to visiting with you in the future when something else comes off the presses uh, with your name attached to it. Thank you, Sarah, for joining me from Hawaii. Well, you're most welcome. Sorry, Come and visit. Uh, you'd be, you'd have a good time here. I've been introduced to you by, uh, I think, the people from the publishing company that said that you were a lot of fun. I'm a fun guy, as they say, and <laughs> I am sorry to hear that you're having a, a cold snap. Uh, it's dropped below 80 degrees there, and you have to put on sweaters. But uh, listen, that, happen- that happens <laughs> well, everywhere. Uh, we'll survive all that. Well. It's a beautiful, beautiful and interesting place. There are many cultures here, and if you enjoy variety, it's a good place to be. Sarah, enjoyed visiting with you. Thank you for being a part of today's program. Oh, it was my pleasure. Well, I look forward to hearing from you again. For Ex Libris On Air, this is Jay Douglas Barker. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Get ready to live la bella vita with Dawn Catherine on Toginet.com. Live la bella vita. If you're wanting to know all the beauty tricks of the trade and the latest fashion trends before everyone else, this is your show. If you admire celebrities' beauty and their fashion sense, this is your show. Do you love wine and want to know more about the process it takes to make wine from the vine to the bottle? This is your show. Live la bella vita. For more on the show and your host, check out our website, labellavitacosmetico.com. This is the kind of show you can sink your teeth into. If you enjoy traveling and food and family, all with an Italian flair, then you can live La Bella Vita with your host, Dawn Catherine. Wednesday nights at midnight, 11 p.m. Central, on Toginet.com. Back to Ex Libris. The title of the book, A Run of Luck, and the author is Wayne Overson. And Wayne joins us now on Ex Libris on Air. Hello, Wayne. Hello there. How are you doing? Great to have you on the show. Uh, this kind of book, where it comes out of your experiences in law enforcement and you are a critic, uh, I'm sure a supporter of the law at the same time, sometimes because of the legal system, people who get charged didn't do it. And so uh, you have that, you have the dichotomy here, don't you? You want justice, but then sometimes prosecutors are rushing to win a case. Right. Uh, as a matter of fact, in uh, in the year 20, 2013, there were 87 felons released, many of them murder cases, who were innocent, found innocent after sometimes more than 20 years in prison. (coughs) I've been, you know, I've been thinking about this for a long time. Um, I taught uh, criminal justice at Weber State University in in Utah and studied a lot of uh, capital cases and... uh, and those that were successful and those that were, uh, some of them were released and 
and uh, it just uh, just doesn't seem right because we could we could spend the money that it takes to uh, go through all the appeals and everything. And this is tax money that people pay. And uh, we could put it to much better use, I think, in crime prevention. That's my main idea. And I would, I would much rather prefer to prevent a, prevent a rape, prevent a murder, prevent felonies, rather than execute somebody. Uh, it just doesn't work out right in my mind. So this this plot, we're dealing with the main character, Corey Holvac. He's a young deputy sheriff. He got the man, and boy, everybody's proud of him, but he's not too sure he got the man. Well, there's uh, a lack of uh, what he considers uh, physical evidence. Uh, he has uh, eyewitnesses, and uh, believe me, I've and we all have, we've seen people who look like somebody we know and right. they're not and we could just you know they could just almost be twins or doubles but uh and uh, we can mistakenly identify certain people i've done this all my life you know just uh I was, ever since i was a kid i used to do that uh get people mixed up well, and you speak from experience not only as a professor of criminal justice, you worked for the Utah Highway Patrol for several years. Yes, I, I spent six years uh, with the Utah Highway Patrol, and uh, in fact, uh, nearly all of that time I was uh, a college student myself, trying to, trying to lead a double life there. <laughs> <laughs> so here we have this this. Um, murder that occurs at a convenience store in the middle of the night. It often happens because somebody's trying to steal some money and then ends up with people being shot and killed. Well, the uh, the robber uh, is not shot and killed. He, he uh, there's a couple of customers that come in and uh, they are uh, Two uh, reserve officers in civilian clothing, and they they see what's going on and yell at him, and then he starts shooting. He gets scared and just shoots. People shoot back and forth. The store clerk has a gun, and so forth, so forth, and uh, they end up killing two guys and injuring a third, and uh, and also the uh, young uh, expectant daughter of. Uh, the man who later tries to execute them, execute him himself uh, at the courthouse, and it's uh, it's a very uh, I don't know to me a, a disturbing uh, situation, but not not something that would be uh, totally uh, out of out of line with uh, a lot of things that are happening right now today. Right, it's based on, even though this is fiction, at the same time, just based on all the different cases that you were aware of. And I think most of us, the way the story opens, and you have this father who is trying to get revenge. He can't take it. He hates the killer who took his young daughter, killed his daughter, as you just described, in in that holdup at that convenience store, and he thinks it's his right, his obligation to do this. Even if he has to go to prison, it's worth it. So he's out to kill, but is he going to kill the right 
person. Like I said, it was is uh, right after he is convicted, right after uh, Marty is convicted, and is being uh, escorted back to the jail, and he's uh, takes a shot at him, and he goes down. To the, uh, Marty goes down, but he doesn't uh, doesn't die. So you, you're raising this this theme, not just to have a good story. You've got concerns, and you're trying to help the readers learn something from your point of view. That's correct. Especially when it comes to conviction of alleged murderers, uh, obviously alleged of any crime, and uh, a caution even to jury members. One of my favorite. Uh, movies is called <clears throat> 12 Angry Men. I don't know if you've ever... Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I'm aware of that, yes. The leader, I uh, can't think of what his name is right now, uh, in the jury, he tries to get the others to think, you know, absolutely think instead of go through their, go by their emotions or what the lawyers are telling them. <clears throat> yeah, it's difficult to stay focused on the facts, on the evidence, when there's so much emotion, especially like a case like this. Yes. Yes. Another aspect of the story is is uh, the prosecutor's assistant, uh, Eve Proctor, who is pretty much on the side of uh, finding more you know, physical evidence. Uh, she's a great sounding board for, uh, for Corey Hovac. They eventually work out um, a lot of lot of details, uh, physical evidence, and uh, <clears throat> she adds a great deal, I think, to the story as well. So, on his own time, this deputy sheriff, even though everybody thinks he got the right man, because he's not sure, he's trying to, as you've just pointed out, get the real evidence. This physical evidence that can prove without a shadow of a doubt. Exactly, yes. Which he, which he actually does, even in this story. But, uh, and uh, anyway, the, uh, the conclusion of the story is that uh, the, the physical evidence is very, very uh, much more convincing than eyewitnesses. Why is that? Why everybody think you know an eyewitness? Well, if an eyewitness saw it, it must be true. Well, like I said before, you know, you. In fact, I have a I have a cousin, and uh, whose uh, whose nephew, he and his nephew, are practically identical twins, and uh, and I have seen numerous uh, situations where, in fact, uh, one day I was. <laughs> I was in a uh, Walmart store and, and uh, I thought I, <laughs> I thought I saw my daughter coming toward me, walking toward me. My daughter who lived in California, and uh, boy, I was going to walk up and grab her, you know. <laughs> 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 but it turned out she was a little bit uh, carrying a little bit more weight than my uh, than my daughter did, and I thought, no, whoa, I can't be her. <laughs> <laughs> It looked uh, looks an awful lot like her, and um, you know if you see somebody in a in a very emotional situation, uh, you would think that uh, it's going to be indelibly, you know, st- 
stuck in your mind what the face is like and everything, but uh, actually it doesn't always work out that way. And mistakes get made. Well, we as Americans want liberty and justice for all, but often in the emotional moment we can jump to conclusions, and and that probably happens more than we would like to know about. I think so, yes. A run of luck. We've been talking to Wayne Overson. He's the author. And, Wayne, what's the best way to get your book? Well, I, uh, I would say uh, you go to... Uh go to the Ex Libris uh, website, inquire there. Right, you go to the publisher Ex Libris, or you can go to any online retail store and and put in a Run of Luck by Wayne Overson, and you can order it that way as well. Or, or try, uh, <clears throat> just Google my name and, and all kinds of uh, uh, websites will, will pop up with... Uh, things about me and the book and so forth. Well, thank you so much, Wayne, for joining us on Ex Libris On Air. Thank you for calling. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. ever wonder if you're the only woman who runs errands in her yoga pants so it will look like she went to the gym? Or how about the only mom who feeds her kids raw cookie dough? Or are you the only one who cooks her family cold cereal for dinner? Do you need more laughter and less loudness? More self-love and less self-loathing? More joy and less judgment? You're not alone. Come to the living room a place where we get comfy, candid, and confident together. Come seeking sanctuary and leave feeling renewed. We are saving a seat for you. Give yourself some living room today. Welcome back to Ex Libris. The title of the book, Ouch, Now I Remember, Reflecting on an Earlier Time. And Tom joins us now on Ex Libris On Air. Hello, Tom. Hi. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's great to have you with us. Uh, this is really uh, quite a unique book because it's part of a trilogy, Ouch, Now I Remember. And in general, it kind of is your early days, right, growing up and how you turned into a policy wonk, and we'll find out what a policy wonk is. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it, uh, even though it's the second book in the trilogy, it uh, logically is the first book because it deals with my early years, and to some extent it's a coming-of-age book uh, uh, in the sense that I was a very unpromising kid from a working-class ethnic neighborhood that most people thought would probably end up in jail uh, than any place else, and by a, a set of circumstances, and I think because of uh, America was still a land of opportunity back then, ended up in a top research university and as a nationally known policy one. It was an exciting journey. Well, as you point out, America back, what were, and what time period are we talking about when you were growing up and going through school? What, 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 
uh, decades are we talking about here? Uh, talking about the, uh, I was born in 1944, so we're talking basically uh, the 1950s, 1960s, uh, early 1970s. I mean, the bulk of the of the book uh, focuses on that time period, um, which also corresponds to a, a time period of great economic growth in the United yes. States, yes. middle class, and so forth. So it, um, but it was also some fun times. You had the Cold War period, and we all waited for the Ruskies to drop the big one and used to hide under our desks at school. And then they had the 1960s, where we took to the streets to change the world. So it was a a time of enormous energy, enormous promise, and a a lot of foolishness as well. And as you point out, America, back then, opportunity really existed in abundance. It's a lot different today than it was back then. Absolutely. I mean... My parents had very little money, um, and you know, I, I went to rundown schools and, and poor neighborhoods. But still, I could go to uh, I, I could still make it through with a little bit of work, hard work, you know, to a, a private college, uh, and all the way on to my P, uh, PhD eventually. And uh, today, uh, and I taught uh, in, uh, at the University of Wisconsin for many years, and I would look over these students uh, now who are who are just burdened with incredible debt. I mean, everything is so expensive. Mm. Uh, and the mountain is just much, much higher uh, for them than it was for us. So you became a mover and a shaker in policy circles. Now, how did that come about? Did you see yourself as that kind of a, were you that kind of a proactive person? Uh, in, a, in, a, in one way, yes, and in another way, no. The yes part is that from a very early age, I, I was always looking for meaning and, and, uh, in life, and that led me to jobs where I could help people working in a hospital, working in a neighborhood opportunity center that was part of the war in poverty. Uh, it led me into the seminary to study for the priesthood and, uh, into the uh, uh, and into the Peace Corps, where I spent two years in India. So I was always looking for uh, something where I could contribute. Uh, the no part is, no, I never saw myself as a policy wonk per se. I was pretty aimless uh, in life, and I got my first job entirely by accident in the state of Wisconsin, uh, where I showed up for a job interview, and I had no idea what the job was. turned out it was for a research analyst in social services, and for some strange reason they hired me. About four years later, I worked with a professor on a lot, from the University of Wisconsin on a large research project. When he got the money, he called me and said, do you want to come down and run it for me? I said, sure, why not? That got me to the university, and then I got my doctorate, and I, I never left. I said, spent my professional career at a place called the Institute for Research on Poverty, which is the, has been since ni- mid-1960s the premier uh, think tank, uh, academic think tank on welfare and poverty and social welfare issues. That's what, fun. What kind, of, what kind of an impact did the Peace Corps have on you? It was a, uh, well, a couple of impacts. Personally, it was an amazing experience. Very difficult. India, 1960s, you're isolated. You're, and we were, we had great training, but we were thrown into a, a job that, we were not suited for it. We were mostly uh, college kids from good schools, 
and a lot of them, you know, from Berkeley and Yale, Columbia, whatever. But we we were we were set out to be agricultural experts, and none of us had ever seen a farm. So that was a bit of a mis, uh, misplanning, and I won't go into the reasons for that. Uh, but to survive two years in rural India, you learn a lot about yourself, and in in a way, the whole trilogy comes out of that experience because. Forty years after we came back to the, uh, the States in 1969, so, ni- so 2009, the group got together, and at the end of our get-together, with two- I never went to any reunions in my life. I went to this one, and it turned out to be very emotional. And at the end, we kind of said, you know, we got to write up our our, uh, our experiences, and we did. And I helped put it together. And then we wrote a second volume. And, and from that, I said, boy, this is a lot of fun. And out of that... Uh, I started working on the trilogy. So but, you know, there, there are things. About, I mean, let me just give you one example. Of, uh, just you never can appreciate the 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 meaning of culture until you live in a, an entirely different culture, because then you have to think about everything every day. India and, uh, was a demanding place in the sense that it was easy to make mistakes and and people were kind of unforgiving. And so you had to think about everything. I mean, we go through life, 99% of our daily lives are unconscious. But uh, there, you really get to know who you are and what your what your priors are, your values are, when you live in an, a, a very radically different uh, set of norms and values and expectations. It, it was an amazing experience. Even though we're talking about uh, your experiences learning to be this social policy wonk, as you describe yourself, this isn't about some dry subject. You want, basically, you hope the readers laugh a lot. Yes. Uh, one of the prof- reviewers of the book, professional reviewers, said that she kept laughing out loud as she went through it. I mean, uh, uh, it, uh, the, the ouch now I remember is particularly funny. I mean, I it, I wrote it just purely as I view the world, which is with a with a lot of laughter and humor. Browsing uh, it, uh, through my candy store is is humorous, and that's your first uh, book. And that's your first that's, book. That's the first book. It's it's also written in a light, accessible way, but I intended it to be a little more serious because I actually hoped that. Uh, students might pick it up, and or it might be assigned in, in some policy courses. But yes, uh, ouch! Now I remember is very funny. I, I remember I gave it to a, a copy to a friend who started guffawing reading the, the dedication. I thought, boy, it's a pretty funny book. If you, <laughs> they start laughing before they even get to page one. So. Well, since we've mentioned the first book, and there's as we've already said, this is a trilogy. You have another one in the making. Yes, uh, it's uh, it's called the Boat Captain's Conundrum, which means almost nothing. That's the working title. We'll see if it lasts. Uh, but um, so, it, it, to some extent, it picks up on browsing uh, through my candy store, uh, in the sense that I am on a bit of a mission to communicate the fact that doing policy doesn't have to be dry, boring stuff. I used to. I used to uh, it, was, it was a required course, social policy was a required course for social work students, and I could see them dragging themselves into the class. Many of them, they want to, many, most of them want to be, you know, like marriage therapists and, and clinicians. 
I said, oh, my God, I have to sit through this terrible stuff. And, uh, you know, I said, this is really fun. And when, if you, when you really get into it, uh, it's difficult, frustrating, hard, you know, you get yelled at. There are many issues in which you cannot satisfy not only everyone, you can't satisfy anyone. One of my favorite mantras on welfare reform, for example, was that I know I was approaching the truth when no one agreed with what I was saying. And so, you know, you have to have a kind of a hard skin, but, but, but the rewards are enormous. And so browsing through my candy store was my professional life, life in the trenches, four decades of, of policy issues and change, uh, social policy, welfare, welfare reform, uh, and the boat captain's conundrum is going to be getting into the mind of a policy wonk. How do they really think? Not, not the analysis. You can get tons of books on how to do regression analysis and you know benefit cost analysis. But how do policy makers and wonks really think about things? And if I can capture that, it will be a great contribution. And you hope that we will understand your view of that you never know how someone will turn out at the end of his life's race by looking at where that individual began. Absolutely. <laughs> so, for all those kids who think they are hopeless, and, and uh, believe me, <laughs> that's not necessarily true. And I, the first chapter, and, and ouch, now I remember, and that's, the, that's where the title comes from. I think back to kid, this hopeless kid, and I would go, oh my God, all these terrible, you know, uh, experiences I had and all these mistakes that I made. Uh, it's lucky I didn't end up in an institution. But, you know, uh, but, but it, 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 did, it did work out. I mean, and uh, the first chapter, you know, goes through a whole series. It, it starts out when I'm retiring from the university from, you know, and all these people came and I'm sort of thinking back how I got there. And all these different sort of vocational dreams I had as a young kid, and each one of them, you know, I, I dismissed because there's no way I was going to be an astronaut or a cowboy or a baseball player. Uh, and finally I came down to, my God, I'm going to have to learn something and try to fool people <laughs> yeah. for the rest of my life. Going to have to uh, learn something. And that's what's so great about, I guess when you look back, you like you've already pointed out, we see... Well, hopefully we see that we've made progress along the way and we've turned into somebody that we probably never, ever expected to turn into. Uh, personally, that is true. Uh, and in part, it was, it was the circumstances of the time. It was cheaper to go to college. Uh, you know, it, it was, there was just, I think, some more, uh, there was a, a more thriving middle class uh, even though we were at the very lowest end of, the, of probably more working class, for sure. Uh, you know, and, and growing up, there, we had very little. I mean, there was, there was no, we had an icebox, you know, and there was no central heating. In some ways, you know, I grew up in a, in a relatively impoverished neighborhood and, and household, and yet it was possible to climb your way out. Uh, now, one could say, gee, people who are poor today, why can't they do the same thing? You know, I did it, why can't they do it? I think the mountain top is much higher now. Uh, and, and I was gifted, I, I believe, with you know, a certain amount of Native intelligence and a, you know, a gift for uh, communicating well and writing well. 
Uh, and so uh, I, I realize that everyone doesn't have the same starting place uh, in in life, but we provide less supports in this country than our peers in uh, Europe, and particularly in the Scandinavian countries, which uh, will pro- uh, which uh, 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 enable people to go to college for free, for example. They'll even American kids who go over uh, to many of these countries can get a free education, uh, and uh, and many other and many other vocational uh, training kinds of uh, opportunities and so forth, which we have been cutting back on. And uh, when I look at what's happened to the University of Wisconsin and other major universities in recent years, it's really a national tragedy. Uh, the cost of going is skyrocketing. Uh, and the amount of public support is uh, declining. And this was a major advantage, comparative advantage we had in the world. Our secondary education system was top-notch, and we're letting it slide, which would be very too bad because it would be very hard to get back if we do. We've been listening to Tom Corbett, the author of his book, Ouch, Now I Remember, reflecting on an earlier time. It's part of a trilogy Tom, what's the best way to get your book? Uh, I suppose uh, Amazon.com or Barnes and Noble, uh, and just look it under the title uh, or under the author, and you should be able to access the two first books. And I'm hoping that the third book will be out uh, this fall. Great to have you on Ex Libris on air, Tom. Thank you. Thank you. Join Stin next week at the same time as he explores the passion and the inspiration behind the works of today's authors. Right here on Ex Libris On Air.